Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today we're talking about newsy stuff. And we're also going to talk about a project that is so very Recode Media, it ought to be called Here's a Good Idea for a Recode Media episode. First, we're going to talk about Hollywood and the actor's strike and the writer's strike and AI and Bob Iger having a hard time at Disney and putting a lot of Disney up for sale, surprisingly. We're going to talk about all of that with Puck's super plugged in Matt Bellany. He's been on the show before. I'm very impressed with Matt's ability to be super connected with all parts of Hollywood and also be a bullshit clearing truth teller. I'm a little surprised he thinks the issue of AI in Hollywood has now become a real thing and not just a bargaining point between the guilds and the studios, but we will see. And then I talked to writer Kurt Anderson about Command Z. That is the new thing he's made with Steven Soderbergh, which you can buy for $8 on Soderbergh's website right now. When I first heard about this over the weekend, I thought it was a marketing stunt for HBO, where Soderbergh gets paid a bunch of money to make TV shows and movies. But nope, that's not it. Instead, this is a very Back to the Future idea. Think back to 2011, when Louis C.K. released his own comedy special on his own website, and that seemed like something we were going to see a lot of, and then never did. So I talked to Anderson about why he and Soderbergh are putting this stuff up on their own website, the idea of the project itself and, and, and sort of what they're trying to accomplish here. Uh, Command Z is timely and it's funny and thinky and it's something you can watch with your kids depending on your kids' patience for you and, and thinky stuff. You're going to like it though. I think you should go check it out. And I hope you check out the rest of this podcast. Now here's me talking to Matt Bellany. I'm here with Puck's excellent Matt Bellany. It's been a while since we've been on. Welcome back, Matt. No problem. What flavor of LaCroix is that on your desk? Um, pamplemousse, which I think is just, what is that? I'm sorry. Grapefruit? That is objectively the worst LaCroix. Oh, hard disagree. We may have to end this podcast early. (laughs) I'm tangerine or nothing. Um, how do you feel about the sub LaCroix, like the polar? There's some people who really love polar, but it's terrible. I, I don't have any opinion about that. It's the knockoffs like bubbly and the others that I'm not on board with. I'm, I'm pro Pepsi. I'm pro bubbly. Um, Matt, as much as I want to talk to you about flavored seltzer water, I want to talk about an eventful week in Hollywood. We had a historic strike and a historic something from from Bob Iger at Disney. Uh, so let's talk about it. First, let's talk about the strike. We're recording this on Tuesday. This will come out Thursday morning. I don't think much will change. Hollywood's writers have been on strike for months. The actors have joined them. I want to talk to you about, first of all, why they've joined. I had Lucas Shaw, your partner on, uh, your podcast partner on few months ago to talk about the basics of the writer's strike. It's, it's money and a little bit of tech maybe added to the mix. Is that the same issue here for the actors? Is it, Are the actors striking for any other reasons than the writers are striking? I think that that's directionally accurate. You know, if this were just about money, I think they probably could have come to an agreement. The problem is that this is about more than money. They're sort of these existential questions about what it means to be a working actor these days. And it comes down to their image, 
will these actors have the right to control and profit from their image when AI makes it possible to do a sequel without the services of that actor? And it comes down to transparency in the streaming universe. The big sticking point is that the actors want 2% of the revenue associated with these streaming hits. And that's not something that the studio and streamers are going to agree to because it requires a either a certain level of transparency in providing data as to consumption of that content. It also leaves them open to using these third-party data services like Parrot Analytics and the others to come up with a formula that these streamers would be stuck with. And they don't want that. So this whole success metric that the Actors Guild wants to give their members more of a piece of the hits on streaming is a huge sticking point. So there's a black, there's a data black box on streaming. In the old days on TV, you could tell when a show was successful. You can tell when it went into syndication. You could tell when a movie was successful. Generally, figuring out the accounting for all that was another mess. But at least you could have a sense of how your stuff was performing and that's what you were owed, if if you were owed anything. It still seems to me from the other side of the country that this is still something that you end up solving either with money, right? The the streamers either give up a little bit of transparency and a little bit of money or they give up less transparency and more money. Isn't that how this gets solved eventually? Eventually, perhaps, but they see this as issues that if they are not resolved now could become extremely onerous down the line. Now is when the AI parameters are being discussed before AI is a real threat. If they don't discuss this now in six years, they're going to come from a place of defense and they're going to have to play catch up. When the when the, the AI stuff came up during the writer's strike, it seemed to come out of nowhere. I thought, oh, this is something that the writers have got in their head and that the studios don't really care about, and the studios aren't going to give it up because it's a negotiating point. But no studio executive really expects to, to generate a real script from AI today or even in the nearish future. I'm assuming the same scenario is going on right now on the actor's side, that no one's going to populate a movie with digital actors without their consent now. So is, is that really the idea that, that this is something that they think is meaningful in the future, but not that far off in the future, that in three years and five years, this is a real thing? And, and another way of asking this, isn't this something you could also sort of punt on and say, look, the tech isn't here. It's not worth fighting over. Let's just agree to not do too much with this stuff. And then we'll revisit it in three or four years when it could be a real thing. A couple questions there. And first of all, I was with you. When, when the writers started talking about this, I was like, oh, this will get resolved. They won't, it won't be a big deal. It all of a sudden blew up, I think in part because the studio's Decline to agree with that scenario, with punting, with just saying, listen, let's agree to a ban right now and we'll come back to it. And the studios were like, no, 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 no. We will not agree to that. And it suggested to the writers that the studios do want to experiment with computer-generated scripts or at least use it as a tool. And they want the freedom to experiment. And the writers were like, whoa, we can't allow that to happen. And on the actor side, I think that generative AI is already being used in movies. It's being used in crowd scenes. It's being used to prevent reassembling the entire cast for a reshoot when you can just kind of create a duplicate and put someone into another scene. And they see this as having 
grown exponentially only in the eight to 12 months that we've been talking about AI. And these deals are negotiated every three years. What is this going to look like in three years? If we don't put up a fight now, it's not going to look good. And we're going to have to go back and going back is never a strong position. You want to go forward. The other thing is the actors are not trying to ban AI. That's what's interesting here. I moderated a panel with the head of SAG, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, in at CES in January. He was very clear. We are not trying to ban AI. They want their members to be able to offer informed consent and to profit from the use of their AI images. And informed consent is the key here because the studios did offer consent to using their image for AI. But if you think in the practical sense, let's say someone is up for a pilot or there's five actors that are vying for one role, a lot of times you have to sign the test agreement before you audition. So what kind of a bargaining position are you in there? And, and you have a, a situation where clause 35 in your test deal allows the studio to use your image forever. Are you gonna to agree to that? Probably because you want the role. Right. But if you have to offer informed consent down the line in a separate negotiation where you have a representative who is able to bargain and figure out what that actually is going to mean, that's much different. And that's what the studio side isn't offering. That's what the actors want. I have signed a gazillion release forms when I do a TV appearance, sometimes on a stage, and has some boilerplate about they get to use my voice and name in perpetuity, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I don't think there's a real market for my voice and name in perpetuity. Oh, you'd be surprised. What if I were having a conversation right now with your AI-generated voice? It would suck even worse than this one. But the point is, my other theory is, if they're really going to exploit that and take advantage of me, then we'll go to litigate that because it's clearly not the intent when I signed it, blah, blah, blah. How realistic is this is, is a real scenario where the evil studios are, are fully populating scenes or shows or movies with people who did not know they were in the movie, right? Which is a whole Netflix, there's a whole Black Mirror episode about this on Netflix. And how much of this is something you could say, of course, we're not going to do that. We're not going to, we're not going to concede that point right away because we really care about money and we'll eventually back off from this in exchange for a little bit more or less money than we were willing to give up or take. Maybe. And I think that these guilds think about the worst case scenario often in order to prevent themselves from being surprised and shocked. But it's not that far-fetched to think about these studios, which, by the way, they can do almost anything they want now. If you look at Harrison Ford in the Indiana Jones movie, that was pretty damn convincing, the de-aged Harrison Ford. You're, you're skeptically it was nodding. The, it was but the best version of that I've seen. They shouldn't have done it for 20 minutes. But yes, it was good. But but you get what I'm saying. Like the, it is it is increasingly possible to do anything. So if you are a studio and you're looking at, you know, we want to make a sequel to this movie, but we only want this actor to be in one or two scenes. We don't want the movie to revolve around him or her. Why don't we just take what we already own and what this person consented to letting us use in perpetuity and put this person into a couple scenes? of the sequel and not pay that person. That is a scenario that a studio lawyer would concoct to contract around having to go back to these people. You know, maybe in Fast and Furious 20, if Ludacris 
you know, is being hard on money. They have a contract that says they can just put Ludacris in the backseat of a car and he appears to be in the movie, in the scene and not just doesn't have very much dialogue. Like that is something that they could do. Which they did with dead Paul Walker. Yeah, exactly. That's what SAG is afraid of here. It's weird when I have a conversation where I'm the naive slash optimistic one, but, but, um, it's also just so much of this stuff is so not good right now. It doesn't hold up. Um, you can do it on the side and when you see it, you go, Oh, that's a de-aged Harrison Ford. It doesn't, but again, it will get better. What does the actors joining the strike do for the overall arc of, of the work stoppage? You know, the sort of conventional wisdom was this thing was going to get solved some point this fall when it was the writers. Do the actors joining push that even farther back out or does it make it more likely that they'll, the, that the studios will make a deal? I think it actually makes it more likely that the studios will do a deal. My current bet is still that this is all resolved around mid-September, by the end of September, maybe in time for the Emmys in September. I hesitate to make predictions because you never know because right now is it is really bad. I mean, the guilds just filed a grievance against Universal for supposedly making it inhospitable to pass on a sidewalk by putting construction materials and hedges out there. Like that's where they are right now. They're not even talking, but they will talk at some point. And what I've heard is similar to what the New York Times reported today is that the studios believe this can go on for a month or so before it starts impacting the summer movies of 2024, movies like Deadpool 3 and a couple others that are, have not finished production yet. And when that starts to happen, that is the that is really bad because if you don't have summer movies, you know you don't have a business right. really, uh, at least for the traditional studios. So I do think that that will be resolved then, and having these actors out will ultimately help the writers. But could go the other way. The writers could honestly say, "Great, you made a deal with SAG. We're not back. You didn't do what we want. We have specific." Demands related to writers' rooms or specific demands related to you know not using Chat GPT to author scripts by computer. The Writers Guild is typically much more aggressive than the other guilds. They're the ones that typically go out and strike. This is the first time since 1980 that SAG has done so. It's only the first time since 2007 that the writers have. So who knows? And if it does get solved mid-September, late September, if I'm a regular person who doesn't read any of this coverage, doesn't listen to this fine podcast or your fine podcast, do I see any effect of this other than that there's no late night TV right now? Will any of this affect what I see on any screen, whether it's TV or, or a movie theater? Uh, I think the there may be some delays on some shows already. There may be some shows that you know they have reconsidered already because of the strike and don't quite make sense now in the climate that we're in and may have made sense. I mean, Apple scrapped a Sam Esmail show already that was kind of on the runway to go and they just say, yeah, it doesn't make as much sense anymore. Stranger Things might debut in you know Q3 rather than Q2 because they've had to shut down. So there will be delays, but I don't think av right now, average person who is trying to keep up with the avalanche of shows and movies anyway is probably not missing. I know I'm missing John Oliver and Bill Maher. That's something that I have noticed and it would be great to have them back and they'll be back the you know the moment the strikes end, but you know other than that, the average person hasn't really felt it yet. One last strike question and it's it's a half devil's advocate question because I half believe it. 
But you know, you hear a lot of demonizing of streaming. Sometimes it's generated at Netflix. Sometimes it's generated just aimed at all of the people who are streaming for breaking the business and making it bad. And it's hard to make a living. But for years, I had people coming into the studio and telling me about their new project that was going to run on Apple or Amazon or wherever. And even if it was even if it was a traditional network, there was so much content being made because Netflix had created and then everyone followed in on this this streaming bubble that everyone got to work for a really long time. Of course, it was not sustainable. I kept asking people, what do you what, what do you do that, when that stops? And they didn't have an answer. But isn't a lot of what's happening right now just a sort of logical reversion to like, all right, we're just going to spend less. And a lot of for a lot of people, that will suck because there was a lot of work to go around and there's going to be less. And that's rational. Isn't that some of what's going on here? There's just that the retraction is sort of predictable and looks bad in the last five years. But if you go back 10 or 15 years, it looks more like a traditional business. I absolutely believe you're right that this is a correction and corrections are tough for everyone involved. But there's a couple of things that make this especially tough. First of all, all those people that came in and were telling you about their new projects, those people were excited because most of them were paid up front. Most of them got premiums from Netflix on what their quotes were. So they thought they were making a lot more money and they were riding high. But the difference between the television industry of the Netflix era and previously is that those shows were typically, you know, eight to 10 episodes. They typically did not go more than a season or two. They typically did not pay the same streaming residuals as a traditional broadcast network. And there was no profit participation. So down the line where we find ourselves today, those same people who may have blown their 20% premium in Vegas right when they got the show are looking at their bank account and being like, man, you know that show? Like yeah. that's yeah. in the past. But that was not, not a, but that was not a bait and switch. They said there's going to be no back end, so we're paying you more up front. I know. It's not like they lied. I mean, Netflix, I think in the very early days, Netflix did make people think that their shows would go longer mm -hmm. than they actually did. It was only when Netflix started canceling shows after a couple seasons that people went, wait a minute. I can have a you know a show that I think is popular that Netflix tells me they love and all of a sudden it ends after the second or third season and I've only made 15 20 episodes of my baby like that people starting to realize that uh, got people to sort of question the model but now when they're not seeing that benefit I mean Fran Drescher's out there talking about the nanny and the days of the nanny are over right. that is just right. not happening anymore and, and by the and, and she's she she was talking about having a hit show on tv because if you're not old you may not remember that the nanny was a hit show on tv hit shows on tv made money for people in the moment and then the real lottery ticket was they would go into syndication so if you were lucky enough to get on a show that went on to tv first of all you were in the in the top echelon then if it was a hit you were even rarer and then if it syndicated the most that was the most rare thing you could get in hollywood of course that you know and so that doesn't exist now but most people in hollywood never got that to begin with yeah but it wasn't that rare i mean the nanny was not friends or seinfeld right. the nanny was a hit show in the 90s and the nanny is still being syndicated i mean that was a sony produce show also it was not owned by the network that it aired on and that also increases the value to that studio because they can sell it resell it put it on international put it on streaming services put it everywhere and because of those deals fran drescher participates to this day in that process now 
something like a show made directly for Netflix, there's no bargaining. Netflix owns it forever. They paid you more up front, but they can exploit it however they want. They do pay residuals, but they do not pay profit participants generally. They capture all of that value. And here we are years later in a strike. We'll talk more about the nanny and this model down the line. I want, I want to talk to you about Bob Iger. Bob Iger, as we all know, was Disney CEO forever, could never pick a successor. Then during the, the right before the pandemic hit, he, he, he quit very suddenly and then came back and, and replaced his replacement, presumably because we well reported that he was unhappy watching what had happened at Disney. And now it seems like he's unhappy running Disney. He said when he came back, he was going to stay for two years. No one believed that. Uh, he's now extended that for another two years. But then he had this extraordinary interview on CNBC last week and said, yeah, there's all kinds of problems with my business, specifically at Disney. We're looking to sell some stuff like our, our TV, our linear TV networks. We're looking for a partner with ESPN. We're going to pull back on production. Was this stuff that he knew he was going to have to deal with when he came back to run the company? I think so. Some of it. I mean, it was pretty clear and by the way, he wasn't gone that long. Mm -hmm. He was really only gone, you know, about a year. Uh, he had kind of relinquished power to Chapek, but he didn't officially leave the company until about a year before he came back. So for him to kind of blame his predecessor is essentially blaming himself uh, without saying so. Oh, yeah, even more so, right? All the, all the, and this is something I've uh, been really kind of rubbing me the wrong way for some time because the journal finally brought it up in a piece last week is almost all of the problems that he's dealing with, right? This glut of stuff that he's made for Disney Plus, the Marvel stuff, um, the low quality of the movies, the fact that he spent tens of billions of dollars on Fox and that doesn't seem to have gotten much in return. Those are all things that he did. They're not Bob Chapek decisions. Yeah, and if you remember when he relinquished the CEO title to Chapek, the messaging was that Iger was going to focus on the creative during his final time at Disney. And now we're seeing the fruits of those efforts. And one after another, these movies this summer from Disney have underperformed. And you're questioning, you know, he's on the CNBC interview saying, yeah, Pixar movies should cost less. And we shouldn't be doing this Marvel stuff that is being stretched too thin and the quality is not up to our standard. Well, not only did he order that this stuff all get made, but he was the one that was supposedly in charge of the creative when they were making it. So where does that leave us in terms of who's to blame? But regardless of the blame game here, I think Iger got into this company and he and it's getting worse and worse. The stock is not moving like he thought it might when he came back. The Netflix stock is moving up. So the market has decided that the Netflix pivot to get into ads and crack down on password sharing and all the things that Netflix has done has convinced the market that they have the winning formula in streaming. And all of these legacy companies do not have a formula for profitability in streaming. So he's got to figure out how to generate profits. And that's cuts right now. It's cuts. So he's going to cut in terms of if you're if you're someone who consumes any of this stuff, he's going to pull back on on some of the Marvel the Marvel and, and Star Wars stuff. We just made too much of it. It's not good enough. We're going to pull back. That's kind of straightforward. The saying that we're considering selling off some of our TV assets, people have been talking about him selling ABC network or ABC television stations forever. It seems like he also is floating out that some of the cable networks that he owns would also go on the market. Who's a buyer for this stuff? Because the digital guys always swear they don't want nothing to do with linear TV. So who wants to buy a declining linear TV asset? 
Well, I think there are two classes here. One could be another media company. You know, if if a Comcast or one of the others steps up and says, eh, you know, we'll take Freeform. We think we can throw it into our package and milk a little cash out of that. Maybe they'll take that. Um, I think that the more likely scenario, though, would be that these networks are like the new newspapers, that they are prime for some private equity vulture to come in and say, listen, you operate this ABC network not in the most profitable way possible. We can come in, we can slash the costs, we can fire all these expensive anchors on Good Morning America and put people who would be more than happy to be in those chairs and not make $25 million a year. We can reduce the kind of programming on these networks and essentially do what private equity has done to newspapers, hollow out the product and milk the carriage fees and advertising fees until the asset kind of withers away. Right. TV is in decline, but it throws off a lot of money still. A lot of people still watch it. And there's a lot of very expensive carriage deals that will keep these things going for a long time. Exactly. And, you know, there could be anyone who buys it might get a deal from Disney to agree to provide programming for X number of years or certain amount of money. You know, if you buy the FX network, then Disney through its 20th arm or FX productions or whatever they keep would decide, say, okay, we'll produce, you know, five new shows for you at our mutual uh, agreement and we'll continue programming this. So there's value there. And plus the value of FX really is showing these, you know, first run cable movies that they show that they can continue to do that. When Bob Iger, one of the most lauded up until very recently uh, media executives ever, says, uh, this stuff we have has got to go. We, we don't see a future in it. What are the knock-on effects for everyone else who's got those assets over at Comcast and Viacom, et cetera? I think they're biting their nails at this point because if if Disney is saying this isn't a real business and you are at – Paramount Global, let's say, and you've got so much more invested in CBS and MTV and VH1 and Comedy Central and all these other things, you're looking at it and you're saying, oh my God, what do we have? I mean, Paramount Global's trying to sell BET right now. And you know they're having problems because the buyer for that, potential buyer, Tyler Perry, is balking at this $3 billion price tag that Paramount thinks that it's worth. Now, we'll, we don't know what they actually think it's worth. We know that's the number that's been floated. And perhaps there's some gamesmanship on there to kind of juice the value of the company by saying that one asset is worth $3 billion when the whole company itself, according to the street, is not even worth $10 billion. But they're also merging the Showtime service into Paramount Plus, um, where you're going you're gonna to get both for one price. Yep. And they're going to still keep Showtime, but kind of wind it down. And, you know, this is a business in retreat. And these companies have not figured out what the narrative is that's going to convince the street that they have growth engines. Right, because the old narrative was, hey, we can be Netflix. And then that came to a screeching halt a year ago, more than a year ago. And then the, the, it was supposed to be, hey, we were profitable, but that is not true or not true enough. Zasloff at Warner Discovery says that they that Max will be profitable by the end of this year. We'll see. And Disney says still that Disney Plus will be profitable in 2024. We'll see if that happens. But it has not happened yet. And the street doesn't seem to believe that it will happen or that it will be meaningfully profitable. Iger also said, I want to take I'm considering a strategic partner for ESPN then wouldn't go into detail. So there's all kinds of speculation about what that means. Is that someone who is just an investor in there? Is it a tech partner? Is it something else? What, what, what do you think he thinks he's going to do there? And why would he say that out loud? Well, he said it out loud, I think, to put the for sale sign, the make us an offer 
sign uh, out for everyone to start firing up their management consultants to say, okay, does this make sense for us? And you know, he and said you think he's, he's selling for- a portion of ESPN. He he wants to hold on to it. I think so. My my colleague Bill Cohan at Puck suggests that it would be good to swap Hulu, the the part they're buying out from Comcast, for a fifty one percent interest in ESPN, and then make up the difference with cash. And that might be a good exit or a good strategy um, for Disney. I don't think Iger wants to part with control of ESPN, particularly giving it to his arch rival Brian Roberts. Um, who already has pretty considerable sports assets with NBC Sports and the Olympics. So I think that most likely Iger's looking for a minority investor. Then it becomes, okay, who is that? Is it a private equity firm? Is it someone like Apple or Amazon that has openly said, we're in the sports business now, and ESPN also could provide, you know, whether it's better access to games, better access to distribution of the channel, some kind of arrangement there? Or is it an outside company like a FanDuel or a DraftKings or a video game company or someone that is kind of sports adjacent but would find terrific value in in co-owning ESPN and all that entails? Maybe Fanatics, Michael Rubin's company that is in the sports memorabilia and apparel business but is not in the actual sports business of broadcasting games. Maybe they'd want to do it. So anyone that can provide cash is what it sounds like. I think a little bit more than cash. I mean, I think Iger would probably want it to be a little strategic uh-huh. where, you know, there's value in in perhaps, you know, a, a fan duel or something having their betting odds appear opposite all the games and to lock out their competitors, something like that. So wild that you can have a rational discussion where you say, well, yeah, it might make sense for Disney to do a, a deal with a sports betting company. Un- un- unbelievable five years ago. Oh, Iger himself said that's not Disney, that they were not going to be in the sports betting business because that's not that's not the Disney brand. Chapek backed away from that. And I think Iger has sort of come around on it because I think it's just become so mainstream now in, in so many different states. that. And he also sees the value there of, of these companies that are willing to spend money to acquire market share for betting. So, you know, I think he's it's a it's a sign of the reality. I mean, a lot of us, including me, are just surprised to see Iger as a seller at all. This guy was the ultimate builder. I mean, he built that company over 15 years with these acquisitions like Pixar and Star Wars and all the others and Fox. Just the fact that they're shedding or wanting to shed these assets is amazing. You know, when Rupert Murdoch sells you something, you should ask, why does Rupert Murdoch want to sell me this? Last question on, on Iger, and then we'll, we'll get out of here. He has extended his 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 timeline. Another two years, he's going to be there through 2026. Again, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, Iger is famous for not finding a successor, for not leaving. At some point, he will be forced to leave because he won't live anymore. But but what, do you think he's really going to do it this time? He's really going to find a successor that he's comfortable with, that the street is comfortable with, and he can actually walk away? First of all, how dare you? Because as we all know, Walt Disney's cryogenically frozen head is still guiding all of these executives from the grave. So Iger will probably have access to that. Sure. Secondly, the succession issue is like the defining issue of Iger's tenure. The fact that he and the board, and remember, it's the board's choice here. Mm-hmm. We say it in terms of Iger, and I know he's a powerful voice, but it is the board's responsibility. And they do supposedly have this blue ribbon committee that is in charge of it. It sounds like I read that like in the these. press release, yes. Sounds a little like the party planning committee on the office, but yeah. So it's uh, it's something that they say is happening. The problem is he does not have obvious internal candidates. 
you know, people talk about Dana Walden or uh, you know, I, even less so Alan Bergman, but maybe Josh tomorrow. These people are, they have significant, they have great qualities. They have significant drawbacks and that they are not some, they have, they have not had experience in other elements of the yep. company. Yep. Uh, maybe whoever Iger brings in as the CFO to replace Christine McCarthy, that person could come from another big media company. That person could be positioned over a couple of years as a heir apparent. Uh, we don't know that. It could end up being someone completely out of the blue that they've been talking about. They have a, a, a firm, the journal reported that they have a, uh, a consulting firm that's looking for potentials here. I would not want to be the headhunter firm in charge of this because <laughs> there's going to be a lot of scrutiny and probably not a lot of candidates that Iger is going to like. So, you know, he's got a little more time now and th th he's just got to gotta do it, got to pull the trigger. And it's he, a failure he, on everybody's he, part. He knows that at this point. He understands. He got away with it in his last tenure. Everyone just loved him so much and they weren't ever going to say anything unpleasant about the fact that all his potential successors were eventually pushed out. Um, but now it's, it's glaring. You can't not look at it. If he re-ups again beyond 2026, I think it, he will become a laughing stock. I mean, I, he may be already a laughing stock on this issue because what is it five times now that he's extended or said he's retiring and then not or come back. But I mean, you got three years now. You got to find something. This is not literally. This is not like heart surgery here. Like you, you've got to. There's got to be somebody out there that can be the CEO of the Walt Disney Company. It is an absolute failure that they have not been able to find anybody. Matt Bellamy, I nominate you for CEO of the Walt Disney Company. I don't look good in ears. You don't have to look good at all. You just you just stay behind a mic. You're, you're good. You can read my stuff at Puck. You can listen to him on The Ringer. He's everywhere, and he's on our show as well. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thanks again to Matt Bellany, who I appreciate, even though I disagree with him strenuously on his water choices. You can still make better choices, Matt. In a minute, we're going to talk to Kurt Anderson about Command Z, the new thing he made with Steven Soderbergh. But first, a word from a sponsor. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Kurt Anderson is a writer, and in the past I've had him on to talk about his book, Evil Genius. He is also the co-founder of the Late Great Spy Magazine. And in the past I've had him on this show to talk about teasing Donald Trump for decades. Kurt is also the co-creator of Command Z. It's kind of a movie, kind of a TV series. He co-created it with Steven Soderbergh. You cannot watch it in theaters or on conventional streaming platforms, but you can buy it on Steven Soderbergh's website, and that is the most recode media story there is. So I've had Kurt back on to talk about it today. Welcome, Kurt. Uh, I'm delighted to be back, longtime listener. And uh, no, I'm happy to happy you're having me and happy to be talking about this show, which can be seen, as you suggest, on commandzseries.com. I, I, I paid my eight bucks. I bought it. Do I get to keep it forever? I didn't, Thank you forever. I, I didn't read terms and you're a and... member of nothing. Okay, great. I love that. Um, I saw it with my kid, with one of my kids. Um, 
so I can describe it. I want to hear you describe what Command Z is, first of all. Uh, in how many seconds? You got you get a podcast. You can go for a while. Well, it is, it's, it's very hard to classify in every, in any sense. And, and, and here it is, as you say, on a website, a filmmaker. It is an eight episode satirical fable set both in the present and the future about some of the ways in which things, especially in America and beyond America in terms of the climate, the world, are bad and, and how and, and, and trying to provoke people in an entertaining, funny way into thinking about the nature of change and long-term change and small incremental changes and and uh, who the bad people are and the various kinds of badness. Do you want us to watch it all in one sitting like I did last night? Not necessarily. I mean, again, I, it's only I, 90 I, minutes. It's, it is only 90 minutes, so it's certainly watchable, although it's, it's not a movie. It is episodic. But, yeah, you could recut it and it could be a movie, but, it's, but it's, it, were, it was really conceived of as an eight-episode series. And because there were no rules and no bosses and no studio and no notes, Stephen, just, he just said, no, we can make these as long or short as we want. So the shortest one's eight minutes, the longest one's 20 minutes, and... and uh, no, either way, I I I have watched it uh, in bits and pieces, and and the, there was a screening, the only screening so far as I know, in a movie theater of it at the Metrograph in New York City on Sunday, and so I got to see it not only all at once, which I'd really never done, and and on a big screen, I kind of loved that too. So, it's a it's a breath mint and a candy mint, Peter. I, I want to talk <laughs> like that. I want to talk about the mechanics of it, and but first of all, how did it come about? Steven Soderbergh's made movies forever, made TV shows more recently. I don't think you've made a movie before. How, how did you guys end up working? I together? have written. I have written screenplays, none of which have been produced, and I've made TV. I've written a bunch of novels. I've most recently, I've written these two big nonfiction books about, as a friend of mine says, the fucking of America. The most recent of which was Evil Geniuses. I've known Stephen slightly for uh, 12 years, and um, when Evil Geniuses came out in 2020, he got a hold of me, had read it, was very, very, very enthusiastic about it, and uh, said, I don't know what I'm thinking, but I would love to figure out a way this could inspire something. And Evil Geniuses is about why things are crappy today, but specifically because there's basically you lay out in, in conspiratorial terms, but it's real. Yeah. Um, uh, a long-standing effort by conservatives and, and their their backers to shape basically the courts and and a lot of parts of America in 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 the way they'd like it. So when you look around, you say, "I don't like the way things are today." That's because of stuff people have been doing for literally decades. Correct, and and without because my previous book was was sort of among other things a critique of untrue conspiracy theories. I had to be careful to say. I'm not saying that it's not the Illuminati and they have control of everything, but there was this plan and they and there was this long game and they stuck to it. The corporate rich and the, what was then the right before it was, you know, the populist right of today, because I was, uh, you know, I, I was doing OK. I never I never quite uh, I mean, I, I always voted for Democrats. I was a liberal, but I, I never really went in depth into the, into the critique of what was happening from around 1980 to now uh while it was happening in the 80s and 90s right and 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 so 
Yes, it. I was. I was like, wow. I lived through that. I didn't quite realize that they had this planning memo in 1971. I didn't really realize the Federalist Society was there in 1982 with what it has become in mind, and on and on and on. You know, the last part of it is about the future and and what AI and the rest will do, how it will be used for ill if we don't make the necessary, not just guardrails, but but big changes in our political economy to make to share the bounty that will come to somebody. And so you guys kicked around ideas and said, let's make a, a web series, let's make a TV series, let's make a movie. What were you thinking you would make? It was never a movie. Uh, it Well, that's not entirely true. At, at the very beginning, Stephen, I don't know if you know the films of Adam Curtis, the British documentarian. I've heard about them. They sound like I would need a lot of drugs to watch them. Yes, you might, or at least watching them would make you feel as though you'd taken and a lot. They're of on YouTube. They're supposed to be amazing. They're on YouTube. They're brilliant, and they're and they're uh, you know. So at first he was thinking, should we do something like that? Anyway, it it fairly quickly evolved to like, no, let's let's do a thing that anybody can watch. You don't have to be an egghead or 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 and or you know, it's not arty. That would be accessible and entertaining. And not necessarily for people who are already civically engaged or politically active or, you know, just for people and, and young people. So that's what it became. And and, and uh, he'd done comedies and I've written funny things and did spy and, you know, had, had. so we felt like, oh, we could we could we can make this funny thing. And pretty soon then it said, oh, let's let's have this time travel be at the center. And somehow people from the future will know how bad things get 30 years or 50 years or had great arguments about how many years down the line. And, uh, and somehow they would meddle in the past, which is to say the present, uh, to, to warn or change or whatever. So that, that became the premise. And then we developed a story and, you know, got other writers involved and had various workshops and, 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 uh, you know, so we were, we were writing and, and, and in some ways, shooting in a small ways uh, as early as in the middle of 2021. And then this version that we made, he made, we wrote last spring and early summer and he shot in uh, last it, summer. And, and so was it yeah. always intended to be, you know, it's 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 eight episodes, some are 22 minutes long, some yeah. are 10, it's all, all yeah. different. Was that always the idea? We're going to do this episodically? Well, it wasn't the, again, we didn't start with a rule. Right. It, 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 you know, because there was no, no, you know, grown up in the room or like, no, this is what we do here at Netflix. Uh, there, there are 30 minute episodes. There are 24 minute episodes. So he just said, write as much as you need. I, I have discovered one of his sort of principles of cinema is to just do as much as you, you know, get in and out. No more time than necessary. So, I mean, he's made some longer movies, but his movie, he, he, he's efficient in his, in his work. And so, so just make them as long as they need to be that you don't have to, there's no, no particular, you know, biscuit tin you have to fill. And, and I, and I was like, really, we, this should be eight or we can't, we shouldn't put them together. No, just make them make these individual things as long as they should be. So no, it was, it was always a series and eventually it was a series of eight episodes, but, but we never said like, oh, let's make them some of them this length and some of them this length. We just thought they should be because it doesn't, even though it, it it deals with the most serious issues on earth and in America. It doesn't take itself too seriously. So I think also the 
we make the points we want to make and, and advance the story in ways we want to make in eight minutes or 12 minutes or finally in 20 minutes as necessary. And again, it was it's that kind of real creative freedom. I mean, a novel or any book is as long as it needs to be, chapters are as long as they need to be. So there's no reason just because you're making a TV show, nope, got to be 24 or 58 minutes, you know? So, so. so why wasn't there a grown-up in the room? He's made He's done lots of studio movies in the past. He's made really big budget stuff. I mean, he's made stuff for Netflix. He's got a deal with HBO. He put out a new HBO series last week. When you guys <laughs> announced this over the over Twitter, yeah. basically, this week, I just assumed it was like a promo for that. Um, why is this not an HBO show or a Netflix show or, or anyone else's show? And, and if they're not paying for it, who paid for the production? He has many things. He, I mean, I, I joked in the thing I sent out about his vast media empire. But he does a lot of things, and and but but in terms of film, and and TV filmmaking, he he really has Magic Mike, Oceans, you know, big, yep, studio things on one side, and then he has a whole other thing with a whole other, effectively staff and coterie. I mean, there's overlap too. Same people, same brilliant woman casts all of his things and everything. But he he makes these things by himself. And and uh, you know funds them differently and and uh, and this is one of these more creative you know more edgy whatever creative things that also he can just make you know I mean like and then some of his films some of his normal theatrical release films uh, many of them actually have been done this way and he makes them and says you want to buy this I know he likes to experiment I mean he kickstarted the indie moving movie movement in the late eighties, he's made a movie on the iPhone that he put on Netflix. Yeah. Um, I know he likes, I mean, he's been in here to talk about this. He likes to make stuff quickly and, and move on, Correct. but, but he funded this himself. Mm -hmm. And then the proceeds are going to charity. So there's no yeah. upside for him. This is just a project well, he wanted to do know, with you. Is there a financial upside? Not, you know, in the short term, I don't, you know, anything could happen, but I don't expect that the, uh, well, no, it's all going to charity. You're right. No, he, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's for right now a philanthropic, non, not generating revenue uh, operation to Steven Soderbergh. That's true. You know, who knows? Maybe you know it'll be it'll be the Barbie of twenty twenty five when we remake it as a film. You know what can I say? I, I did ask someone uh, who works them about this project. I said, you know, why isn't it HBO? And they were kind of hemmed and hawed. And they said, well, I think it's just shot in one room, and and it is. You know, it's not lavish sets. Most of it does happen in one well, room, but it's, it's but it's it, not made for nothing, right? There's a lot of people working on it. And there, and there. By the way, there are many locations, and mm -hmm. and like thirty-five actors, and there is a main location of this grungy little room in the future. Yes, yeah. which is a creative choice, but there are lots of locations. And no, it's it's a lo it, definitely it's a low budget thing. But but also, you know, again, he he said to me sometime while during the shooting is like, you know, basically that he likes to pay, spend just as much as any given thing needs to have spent on it you know and and you know and i don't think he knew in advance like this is the going to be the budget for this we just we figured it out no okay okay but yeah no it was you know union crews and it was it was like a it was like a genuine movie production to, as far as i could yeah tell. no no i was yeah. watching the credits they're they're lengthy a lot of people worked on that thing yeah. I, did, I didn't see your name in the credits but i could have sworn i saw a cameo of you so from you is that did I make that you up? You did not see a cameo, but my name's all over the. You're place. not. My you're not like. You're not the guy in the end walking through the coffee shop. No, no, no. It's but I, just I like imagined to it was you. Create that. No, I, I, uh, I, I. In fact, I was almost embarrassed at how many credits I, I get because Stephen himself uses 
uh, pseudonyms and credits a lot because he does so many things on his films. So there's a ton of AI discussion in here. There's uh, the Michael Sarah character is some amalgam of Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk. Is there some grand takeaway you guys have about tech or it's just tech is just part of the story because tech is part of our life? No, I mean, I have my own takes about tech that aren't, you know, in this, in this fun sci-fi satire aren't really there, except, you know, I mean, nothing beyond what listeners to Recode Media don't already know about tech and how in, in, in this accelerating way, AI in particular is transforming the way we live and will transform the way we live. And again, as I say, in, in this last nonfiction book I wrote, uh, I, I talked about that and that's clearly true. And one of the ways I feel is which in which we like, wow, lucky timing, you know, that we were developing this and writing this and then shooting it, you know, months and in fact, years before chat GPT sort of changed that whole mm -hmm. discourse and shocked the world, right? And so here we have an AI who is also, unit, you know, as you say, an amalgam of Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, certainly it's art. He's arguably that, and and they are one, and they are, and and it. He still controls his trillion dollar uh, enterprise. So there's no grander theoretical takeaway on what must be done, other than values and democracy should should still have a role, and and the owners of technology shouldn't control our world more than they control it now. Well, uh, another nerdy question, tech question that's particular interest to me, 10, 13, no, 11 years, just 2012. 11 years ago, Louis C.K. put out his own stand-up um, act on his own website, and it was a big deal then, or it seemed like a big deal at the time. He was very buzzy, and he was sort of paving this way to do your own distribution, and there was a lot of talk about how this could be the wave of the future, and I know other people were trying to figure out how to do the same thing, and then none of them did. Any idea why people haven't been releasing their own stuff on their own sites, just doing exactly what you guys have done? Well, what I would say is that, yes, that happened, as you say. I'm taking your word for it that it's 12 years ago. What else happened 12 years ago? You know, Netflix uh, started making movies, started making shows. Then, you know, uh, all the rest. You know, Amazon got into the game. And so suddenly, before there was even a chance for the people to do the Louis C.K. thing or what Stephen is trying to do here to get going. There were these ginormous, you know, big cats in, you know. Just throwing money around. It'd be throwing ridiculous. Throwing money around to... and taking it over. So why would you spend, and, and, and becoming, and, and to some degree having a network effect where, oh, I subscribe to Netflix. So that's where I look for things. So it's sort of, it's sort of because the internet was already whatever it was at that point, right? I mean, you know, 20 odd years old. Uh, the, the, the norm, a, a different kind of development period didn't happen where you didn't have, you know, as you did at the in, back in the 90s with, you know, companies in tech, you didn't have the 10 years for this other ecosystem of people showing movies and TV shows uh, on all kinds of sites. And Sure, and, and and that would have worked out differently. But as it worked out, these big giant, both new companies, new-ish, Amazon wasn't new at that point, but tech company, and Netflix, a newer company, 
you know, dominated it. And then the old entertainment companies, you know, like Comcast and all the rest right. got into it. And that was that. And and it was suddenly like like every other concentrated industry in America, there were, you know, whatever there are, five. It, it was a concentration, but it was like, also just a boom of spending, right? It was very hard well, not to make a TV show or not to make a movie. Everyone got to make one at some point. Now that money is retracting to correct, some degree. Correct. Do you think we'll see more of these these DIY, put it up on the web, charge eight bucks well, for it? Well, you know, I, I, it's interesting because have, being through it, having gone through it now for three days, <laughs> two days, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it. It reminds me of all, as you sort of suggested, at the earlier days of the internet. Certainly back, I remember, you know, the early Wired magazine net utopia period in the nineties. But but even once broadband happened, right in the in the aughts, uh, like wow, you could really do this, and this this can be some kind of wonderful, if not utopian, but a thing, but a but a place for a kind of different kind of distribution renaissance for for art for movies for entertainment and then these 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 big guys all came in and it became their show so and what what seems to be true is that it's possible i mean the technology and the bandwidth and the capacity i mean it you know i mean as ever you, you got to figure out a way to market it, clever ways to market it and publicize it and all mm -hmm. that but you always do and and if 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 you know the Netflixes and Amazons of the world aren't overpaying everybody these irresistible sums, um, that like well maybe you're just back to being an independent filmmaker and scrabbling around what you gotta do. Well, I'm not sure. You know, putting up making your thing that you th think is good and charging whatever you can charge for it can't work. I mean, you know. Uh, it, We'll see. And and again, the, the timing of this, both with the Writers Guild strikes, and I'm on strike, by the way. So I want to talk about that, and they should, and 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 I support the Writers Guild fully. Uh, and after an Sagron strike, as well as AI having its current AI summer, I guess, or whatever it is, um, it's a good moment to be to be both talking about those issues as we do in this funny, enjoyable, entirely entertaining and inexpensive film. Um, uh, but also kind of embodying it, like, oh, we just made it. We made it. Stephen made it. We did it. He's putting it on his website. Watch it's it. It's very cool. You put it together. It's it, it's a real movie or it's a real project. There's real people. They got paid. Any idea how many how many of these how many of these sales you need to make at eight bucks a pop for for Stephen to get in the black here? Well, again, it's all going to charity. Yep, so but but for him to clear his costs, for him to clear his costs. Oh, I, I well that that would just be a hype. No. But that would just be a kind of hypothetical since, I mean, so as a model for other people who mm -hmm. don't want to give it all away to do, I don't know, you need, I don't know, more than, I don't know, 10, I, I don't know, many thousands, but not like, I don't know, I mean, well, I, I wouldn't want to hazard a guess because I'd probably be wrong, but like, not that many. All right, Actually, Recode Media people, there are there are several of you out there, enough to get me to keep doing this podcast. So, th so yeah. let's see if we can help Steven Soderbergh and, and Kurt Anderson go. clear their costs here. What's the website called? It's a, it, with the Google Command Z, you'll find it. CommandZseries.com. You'll get it. It's easy. It's fun. You can watch it all in one night. It's not a bad thing to do. Kurt Anderson, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Peter. Thank you. Thanks again to Kurt Anderson. Thanks again to Matt Bellany. Thanks again to Delaney Carter. 
and Jolie Myers, who produce and edit this show, to our advertisers, wherever they are. We love you guys. You make money for us, and we can produce this show for free for you guys, the Recode Media listeners. We really like making this show. It's fun. We'll see you next week.